Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to a conversation that I did with the filmmaker Wes Anderson and the film programmer, distributor, and publisher, Jake Perlin, about a new book called Do Not Detonate Without Presidential Approval. And it's a book that's inspired by Asteroid City, which is Wes Anderson's new film that's out in theaters now. So the book is inspired by the movie. Yes, the book is like a accompaniment to the film, and it takes a lot of the themes of the film and collects like more archival articles about them and also new pieces of film criticism, some really, really great film criticism in here about movies that deal with the West noir, mm. Sunbelt noir, and also writers like Sam Shepard and George Simeon and... Um, yeah. And also like, there's a great Hilton Al's piece on Sam Shepard. There's, it's a great book. I really loved the book. And I also saw the film after having read the book. And I thought it was, it definitely enriched the film for me because I kind of got all these deeper references after having read the book. And I really enjoyed the film, I have to say. Yeah. Are you a Wes Anderson fan? Yeah. Have you seen all his movies? No, I, I have a big hole in my Wes Anderson oeuvre. <laughs> so I, I haven't seen the last few. Okay. But this one was interesting. It's very layered. It's kind of complicated. It's like a, it's a film, but it's also a play. It is also a TV version of a play. So all the characters are themselves, but then they're also actors playing characters. So I, I really liked that layering complication. Like uh, I didn't think it was kind of like one-to-one. I felt like it became this way more fictional kind of impossible space that I loved. And it's so beautiful. It's, you know, like all Wes Anderson movies, I guess it's the aesthetic is very precise, unique. The colors are incredible because it's shot in a desert. I don't believe it's the real desert it depicts in Arizona, but it's uh, somewhere in Spain. Okay. It just looked gorgeous. And yeah, the acting was good. I thought it was like, how are these people playing these multiple versions of characters? Yeah, it was like very conceptual in a way. And I, I really liked it. And um, I haven't I was, had a chance to see it, but I, I'm I'm excited to. Yeah, I think it's, it's worth seeing. It's also, it's just one of those films where you're like, yeah, that's why you go to the movies for this type of spectacle. Right. You couldn't enjoy it as much, nearly as much on a TV. Yeah, that makes sense. Have you been seeing all of the Wes Anderson pastiche TikTok trend? Speaking of seeing Wes Anderson on a very much smaller screen, <laughs> it's not Wes Anderson, obviously. I haven't. What is that? It's people sort of filming themselves in their daily routines in the style of Wes Anderson. <laughs> That's so um, funny. It's pretty funny. And some of them are good. I think it says a lot about a filmmaker a contemporary filmmaker that you can do that. I think not that many contemporary filmmakers really lend themselves to recreating their particular aesthetic experience and having it be recognizable immediately. Yeah. I think Wes Anderson's probably the only one who really does that. Yeah, for sure. Especially in American film, like there's yeah. not that many other people. It was such a thrill to speak to Wes and Jake is a really good friend of mine. So it was fun to interview him in a more formal way. But 
of course, in the back of my mind, I was thinking I've always had these ideas of things I think would make great Wes Anderson movies. Because there were stories that I encountered that I was like, this is a Wes Anderson movie. You know, I thought, oh, maybe I'll pitch some of those movies. That didn't happen. I also thought maybe Wes will meet me and on the Zoom and want to put me in a movie. Kate, it could still happen. No offers yet. No offers yet. I want to be part of this ensemble cast. I think it would be so fun, but still waiting for the call. All right. Well, we're going to wait together. Fingers crossed. Yeah. I think you you still have a chance. I'm not SAG. So this is a perfect time to work with me. Oh my gosh. That's right. You are an eager scab. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. No alliance to the unions. Well, actually, yeah, we do. I was kind of asking all my big question at the end about like, where do you see cinema going? And he was worried at that time. This was a week ago or so. We recorded this about the imminent strike and come to pass. So, yeah. Well, power to the unions. Yes. We want to see them win. Yeah. And let's hear this conversation. Sounds great. Great. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with the filmmaker Wes Anderson and the film programmer, publisher, and distributor, as well as a dear friend of mine, Jake Perlin. Jake Perlin is the founding artistic director of Metrograph in New York City, and he oversees the nonprofit Cinema Conservancy. He owns and operates the Film Desk, which re-releases both international classics and great American independence theatrically, and Film Desk Books, a small press dedicated to books on cinema. He was named a Chevalier by the Order of Arts and Letters in France, and he received a special award from the New York Film Critics Circle for his indispensable contributions to film culture. Wes Anderson is one of the most distinctive and original auteurs of the last three decades. His many films, which include Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, The Royal Tenenbaums, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise Kingdom, The Grand Budapest Hotel, and Isle of Dogs, have received numerous Academy Award nominations, including for Best Director, Best Picture, and twice for Best Original Screenplay, as well as actual Academy Awards, Golden Globes, and BAFTA Awards, and the Silver Bear for Best Director at the Berlin Film Festival. Anderson's latest film is Asteroid City, which is out in theaters now. And today we'll be discussing a book that he collaborated on with Jake about it called Do Not Detonate Without Presidential Approval. The book is an anthology that takes inspiration from different aspects of Asteroid City, including its setting, which is the American West in a small town in the 1950s, hosting a junior stargazers award ceremony, as well as its parallel existence as a televised stage play. Another theme of the book is the Broadway stage. And of course, the movies themselves with the theme of mid-century cinema. The collection, like Anderson's film, reveals an interwoven lattice of illusion, reference, and history, a deep and sometimes startling connection between American life, politics, and entertainment, the day-to-day realities of being a part of an ensemble and working on a theatrical production, as well as some incredibly incisive film criticism with excellent pieces on movies such as Some Came Running, Ace in the Hole, and Desert Fury. Thank you so much, Wes and Jake, for being here. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, too. I was thinking we could start by talking about how you came to work together on this anthology. And also, Wes, you know, this seems like this is a pattern now. This is your third book in relation to a film. And I was just curious, you know, about that part of your process and why you like to do that after your films are out. Well, the first of these books like this that we did with Pushkin was with the Grand Budapest Hotel, we did one of Stefan Zweig, 
writings that had some connection to the movie a bit. And then we did one for the French Dispatch. That one, the movie was very sort of directly related to various writers, from mostly from, from and around The New Yorker. This one's a little more freely connected to the movie. And this one depends a lot on Jake's choices. I mean, our shared interests and things related to the movie, but much to do with Jake's, with Jake's ideas about what are the best things that kind of come out of those worlds that the movie tries to portray. I loved the um, book for French Dispatch, which is called The Editor's Burial. And when I saw the film, there were a lot of things that Wes was making reference to that I was so pleasantly surprised about, particularly the Mavis Gallant stuff, which is fairly obscure. I don't think that that book, Paris Notebooks, is even in print anymore. The short stories are what seems to stay in the public consciousness with Mavis Gallant. But she's such an interesting character herself. Obviously, that's part of what we used, was not just her writing about May 68, but also her personality. And I felt like I had some knowledge of that. So when it turned up in the film, I was really happy to be able to have that reference. And that whole book, I was very excited about. I love that book. So when we started talking about this, and you're wanting to sort of take it a step further, I thought that was a great idea. You know, on a practical level, we commissioned pieces from people who hadn't seen the film. And Wes's sort of idea of having these pieces be standalone works of criticism that are going to not reference Asteroid City seemed like a great idea to me. So that was a big part of, of doing this and a, a pretty crucial idea that there were films that U.S. wanted pieces on, but not ones that were going to reference Asteroid City in any way. You know, the thing with these books is they're related to the movies, but what we want is something entertaining by itself. And it's sort of a a way of collecting the footnotes and also sharing enthusiasm for these kind of related works. But there are things in the new book that, you know, I'd never read some of these pieces. You know, like Lillian Ross is someone who I knew and who the connection with Lillian Ross is more direct. But for instance, the, the Sidney Lumet, is that a Lillian Ross? No, the one backstage at Playhouse 90, that's about Frankenheimer. Let's talk about that. That piece blew my mind. I thought it was so amazing. And um, I thought it, you know, gave a sense of that era of television as being way more dynamic than I would have ever have thought. I mean, it was, it seemed incredibly stressful to stage that play and have it televised and just within the short amount of time. And since that's an aspect of the film, that it's not just the stage play of Asteroid City, but it's a televised stage play, I was really curious, Wes, why televised stage play? Why reference this time of television history and kind of the dimension of it, that it gives this other vanishing point within the film? So it's not just the, you know, front stage, backstage. There's just this whole other kind of space now using that. So maybe you could talk about that aspect of the film. And also, Jake, uh, you could talk about how you found that Playhouse 90 piece. The thing is, I struggle with the why. It would be hard to really justify the layers of sort of complicated structuring. What I'm trying to do is to 
tell a story. And I'm interested in telling a story that's about what really what I want is the backstage of a play, you know, of a Broadway play of this period, and then the play itself. And that was sort of our idea. Now, how this ended up being a television broadcast, in a way, it was sort of just an idea for how do we walk the audience through this? Let's give them a host who's going to guide us back and forth through the layers of it. And maybe we can keep that host in the period. And so we thought of a Playhouse 90 type, the thing they used to do, one-off television plays. And there was wonderful kind of excitement of that. I mean, they were done live. And, you know, all these directors, I mean, Frankenheimer and Sidney Lumet are two of the big ones, but also I think Friedkin was kind of on the heels of Frankenheimer. And Rod Serling was one of the big voices in that. And Patty Chayefsky writing these things and all that whole circle of people, all of that seemed an interesting aspect of the world of the period anyway. But it would be a stretch to say that the reasons for doing it were very rational. It's really just me kind of thinking it up with my co-writer, Roman Coppola, and us doing what we wanted to do. The why is really because, well, we thought, this seems kind of interesting. Let's see where it takes us. And of course, where you end up is with something where we, we think we're taking the audience by the hand, but in fact, we're probably asking a lot of them. But the people who kind of get all of it, they're saying, oh, I know exactly where you're going with this. But that's probably a fairly limited number of people. So I just, I hope it's still keeps other people engaged in it. And maybe there are things that they might not have been interested in that they'll become interested in from it. But um, at the same time, it probably works against our goal of saying, we're just going to guide you smoothly through the storytelling. Instead, it becomes a little more like Byzantine. The people that Wes mentioned are all people I had in mind too when I first saw the film. I mean, one of the fun things about working on this was that we didn't discuss much before I went in to see the film for the first time. It was going in pretty cold. And I immediately started thinking about live television broadcasts, people like Serling, and it was something that I just wanted to comment on. But like Wes said, it's not, it's not that I was looking to find an explanatory piece about this. In terms of this piece specifically, I've always been sort of fascinated by this period, too. When I was much younger, I used to spend time at the Museum of Television and Radio. I guess it's the Paley Center now. But if you wanted to watch anything, an old episode of The Honeymooners or, or Star Trek or Saturday Night Live or any of the things that I was interested in when I was younger, you went to the Paley Center and they would call up these tapes for you. And you could sit in little booths and, and watch them. And this was an activity I did rather often with my father. But I would also say that that area of Manhattan, sort of like it's near CBS and not far from Broadway. And I just feel like there were, and I guess 52nd Street used to be like the big strip of all the jazz clubs. And I just, you know, not far from Rockefeller Center. And there's just sort of like a, a mystique or glamour of that era of television and the ingenuity of it. And uh, I love in the beginning of the film when Edward Norton is sort of introducing the cast of characters and you see sort of the apparatus, the artifice of staging a play. And somehow that all comes together for me, that era. 
Yeah, it's interesting to hear you, you both talk about it because it seems like there's probably a lot more connection than maybe I would have assumed between the stage, film, and television at the time. I can't remember what essay or piece it is in the book that says, you know, how much film was reacting in the 50s to television. And that's what the birth of Technicolor came out of wanting to differentiate film from television. And I think we kind of see that in the film going from the black and white of the opening then to the the beautiful, you know, rich tones when the credits come up in the beginning, you know, that contrast. So I was curious for you both as people so invested in film, you know, if you ever think of TV now as something that film has to differentiate itself from, if that's part of your impetus, Wes, for making the kind of films that you do, especially in the era of streaming where, you know, you're watching so many more films on a TV, if that contrast is something that's kind of a current concern for either of you. Well, definitely the, um, there are Technicolor movies even in the 30s, but the stuff that happens in the 50s, you know, CinemaScope and VistaVision and all the, the thing of getting bigger, that I think is totally reaction to television. And that's still the thing that we have, you know, I mean, I feel when you go into a real movie theater, a cinema, and you sit there in the dark and the movie starts and you don't control it and you can't bother. I mean, this is, I mean, obviously this goes without saying, but to see it big and to see it in a way where it's, where you're really the audience, you're not in control of it at all. You're just a passive person to have this thing take over your life for whatever period of time it lasts. Well, for me, my concentration is much better in that setting. And I really see the movie then. And so that's what I prefer as an audience member and as a movie maker, I don't think there's any substitute for it. Even though I love Blu-ray, you know, I love to watch a Blu-ray. This, I think, is the great home video format, which is also not streaming. But, you know, there's nothing like going and watching a movie in a, in a movie theater. Yeah, historically, Hollywood um, has always been trying to move away from whatever the new technology is, distinguish itself from television, distinguish itself from home video, distinguish itself from DVD. And a big way that they did that was through making things bigger. Sort of like that whole era of like the super production, you know, selling tickets. In the 50s and 60s, there are instances of selling tickets to these super productions like they were theater. You know, opening a film at Radio City, having programs, you know, these roadshow versions that would be in some way different from what would then play further on in the run. So always trying to one-up or distinguish for the audience from what they were getting at, um, at home. I think one thing where it's really collapsed is not just with streaming, but sort of the notion of, of certain types of stars, like... At least I remember in, in our childhood, there were a certain type of star that was a television star and not a film star, right? And occasionally someone would try to make that jump, like Shelley Long or Ted Danson or um, even Henry Winkler, who shows up in The French Dispatch. I don't know, Wes, was that the only film you did with Henry Winkler, French Dispatch? That's uh, so far. My favorite is, you know, he's in a part of our movie that has Benicio Del Toro. Benicio, he was so into having Henry Winkler. He was so moved to meet him. I mean, I think he's seen more of 
Henry and Stacy is Henry's wife in Los Angeles. He lives in Los Angeles. But um, the idea of the Fonz being on a set with us, that was just totally thrilling to him. And obviously to me too. But I also, the thing is, he's just one of the most charming, entertaining, pleasant people to be around. He's incredible. He's so great on Barry. I love him. And But the thing is, is like we were familiar with these actors in a different way. I imagine that more people watched a rerun of Happy Days, you know, than the finale of whatever the biggest streaming show is now. You know, something like a big episode of Happy Days or a show from around that, you know, Laverne and Shirley was, or All in the Family. You know, I mean, I'm not saying probably, I know for sure, you know, something like, you know, two thirds of people were watching. So, you know, more people were watching a rerun of MASH than even seeing like some films. You know, 75 million people were watching like a rerun of the Jefferson. So, but there was a sort of distinction made between what type of, what type of stars you wouldn't necessarily see a big Hollywood star on a television show. And now it's completely broken down. We did have some guys like Saturday Night Live produced some, like Bill Murray, but also Travolta. Remember, Travolta comes from a TV show and just goes absolutely, becomes the biggest movie star in the world. Yes. It seems to me also that a lot of the actors that were on the stage, and this is a connection we tried to make in the book, particularly just in the way that it's structured moving east to west, New York towards, I mean, the desert and then Hollywood. But the stage was before television. That was the real training ground, or that's where these stars came from, from the actor's studio. So what we're getting, people like Kazan, Brando, Dean, all the people that are referenced or amalgamated in, in the film, these became the stars on screen. Yeah, and the movie really enacts that east to west journey in that, you know, there's this production in New York and then the parallel setting of Asteroid City. And I'm wondering, you know, Jake, the pieces in the book, also as a lifelong New Yorker, just the West as this kind of monolithic idea, how you started to interpret that. And also, Wes, I don't know if this is your first film set in the West for a really long time, since your early movies, maybe. And I know that you actually shot in Spain, so that's an interesting transposition, but just what it's like to, as someone who grew up, you know, I guess Texas is a little bit between South and West, but what it's like to return to the West as setting. I've never been to Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada. I've never been to those places. My entire notion of that is informed through film and to some degree literature and perhaps music, but really it's film completely. So yeah, this sort of, that's sort of, well, the Molly Haskell piece about Ace in the Hole is called Noir and Broad Daylight, but that's sort of like broad daylight Western or film that is depicted in, in so many films. Yeah, that is my entire, my entire point of reference for the Southwest. But I would also probably say that my entire point of reference for most anything that I haven't done or visited is movies. I mean, for me, that's, I mean, I guess I am from Texas and I've been back and forth between Texas and California. I've made those road trips again and again and again and train trips too. But for me, New York and France, you know, there are other places that come to me where I really feel like my, even if I've gotten to know them later, my first impressions are totally from the movies. But, you know, a funny thing with the West for me was 
which we've talked about, is um, how much, not only that do we get our ideas of it, even if you've been there from movies, but the idea of outsiders having their take on that part of the world really informs me, even as a kind of a local, I, for instance, love how Vim Vendors interprets this part of the world. I mean, Vim Vendors, Sam Shepard together. Sam Shepard comes from California, but their take on it is partly coming to us through Berlin, and he's got Robbie Mueller. And then also Sam Shepard's comes through, is coming back to it through a whole kind of avant-garde life. And all of that is their perspective on it affects mine. And the things that they picked as interesting and that stuck out to them, I focus on because of them. So I don't know, for whatever that's worth, I mean, I feel like even having spent my own time in the desert with no cinematic interest in it, it's coming back to it through the eyes of artists that partly kind of inspires me. And then that, I think, applies to all the, when you talk about sort of noir type movies, well, there's so many sort of big not necessarily B pictures, but genre pictures kind of that have that setting and that desert setting that Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, California. I think of needles, you know, places like that. Yeah, that give it an interest that's sort of out that doesn't come from real life. It comes from something invented. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Wes Anderson and Jake Perlin, whose new book is Do Not Detonate Without Presidential Approval. I think that's a fascinating way to, to see it. And right, there's the there's the realities, the kind of necessities of, of the landscape and the life there. And then there's the way it's mythologized. And one way is, you know, a toughness, the cowboy, this kind of figure of of masculinity that comes from the West that is very American. I think it's so interesting the way you play with that in the film. And you mentioned Sam Shepard. I love the Sam Shepard story that's included in the collection. But, you know, Jason Schwartzman's character, you know, is this rugged, tough war photographer who hasn't even told his children yet that their mother is dead until, you know, later in the film. And then underneath it, he's also this emoting actor who has a very homoerotic scene with Edward Norton's character. So you really layer this form of masculinity or this kind of stock notion of Western masculinity. And I was curious to hear you talk about that West, that choice, and then also just, you know, how that maybe relates personally to you having grown up in Texas, this kind of man that you might have been around or, you know, why you wanted to explode that a bit? Well, you know, the thing I think of in relation to that is, um, you know, there's one kind of male character. There's a range of them you get. If you look at movies in the 50s, those characters are so different from the ones you see in the 70s and the 80s. And people who don't watch movies all the time, if you go to see a, a movie from, you know, 1948 with somebody who only really watches movies made after 1980, they laugh often because of the behavior of the men. 
anybody who does it, you've seen this happen. And on the other hand, if you watch these movies all the time, you kind of think, what do you like? Have you not ever seen an old movie before? This is what they're like. This is part of what life was like. This is what men were like. In relation to this story, there was something I read in particular that was Sam Shepard talking about his father. And the fathers always seem to come into these things. And he was talking about how, you know, these guys came back from the war and they kind of bottled it all up inside them. And they never really, they just didn't, whether they talked about it or not, they didn't exactly process it. And there were people who were diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, but it was certainly a bit shameful. And a lot of people who never acknowledged it, but they dealt the results of it into their kitchens and, you know, their suburban houses that began to crop up all over the place. That's why we end up more or less every man in our movies, without mentioning he was probably over there. And they almost all have a sidearm, which is a particularly American thing for, our, you know, our part of the world. Most parts of the world, you're not encouraged to carry a, a firearm. But part of that comes from really Sam Shepard talking about his father, I think. Um, I mean, in my own experience, well, my father was, he wasn't in the war. And I mean, he's a little young. And, you know, he's my father's a Texan, but he's born in Illinois. But he's not really that kind of guy. He's so uh, distinctly different. He's was a gentler person. But certainly his father was more like these kind of archetypes we're talking about. and. I can see how that stuff affected him. And that's part of what our movie's about. I think in a way we kind of ended up writing about me and Roman and it related to Jason as well. Our sort of family histories and these sagas that are American, which are tend to be about people moving around and putting down roots in new places. And, uh, or I don't know if they're called roots at that point. Anyway, putting the stakes in new places and migrating and all of that and stuff that's particularly American. I think it's interesting that there's this like kind of stern masculine image and then it's paired with, you know, this style of acting that's all about going into the memories and going into yourself and emoting and kind of going as far as you can. So I wanted to ask you both about the references to the group theater and that group of actors and also the political connection of those actors. There's a part in your interview where Wes says, the distance between being an actor on stage and a hydrogen bomb is not so far, which I thought was pretty revelatory uh, idea. So maybe you could both talk about that aspect of the collection. Well, I think with the group theater, now it comes from, there's a whole group of people in there, Harold Clerman and Kazan and there's a whole world of things coming out of Stanislavski and all that, but there's a degree to which I think Marlon Brando is this key thinker in it, not just a performer, but this guy's personality and way of doing it and just the originality of his presence and his way of talking and what's going through his mind and his reaction to what he saw and the sort of charisma of him I think that is is hard to overestimate how much it just comes out of him. So I think a guy like Kazan, I mean, you know, he, I think he wants to just get him back as many times as he can. And he has other people. I mean, you know, he discovers James Dean, but James Dean, so much of that is uh, him idolizing Marlon Brando and saying, I want to be like that. And same with Montgomery Cliff. 
also, everyone is looking towards Brando. And, uh, you know, when there's, I think the atomic bomb, you know, it's sort of those tests that are happening at the beginning and end of Asteroid City, you know, it's just sort of like happening over the ridge. I think that the idea, hopefully in the book, is that all this political stuff is just sort of happening over over the ridge. Like, we don't need to necessarily get into, you know, what happened with Kazan and the House on American Activities Committee. You kind of, that's going to happen. But very early on with the group theater and actor studio, that sort of interest, their radicalization, or, you know, it's so much a part of what, of what they're doing. The book sort of skips ahead and begins with Kazan. We don't go back as far as Clerman. But the point I sort of took from Asteroid City is that everything is happening under this cloud. And also this interest in outer space with invention, you know, it all, this is not having talked to Wes about this, but it spoke to me just about like everything that's happening in that period. And in the conversation that you and I have, Wes, at the beginning of the book, you you had mentioned to me prior to that conversation, you're, you know, Nashville. And I, I just automatically assumed that your interest in Nashville or Altman in general was having to do with these gigantic ensembles. And then in the conversation, you sort of say that Nashville is a point of reference because, you know, it nails 1976. It nails the bicentennial year, you know, far beyond what the characters are discussing. That's the backdrop. And I think that's what's happening in Asteroid City. So a lot of the pieces in the book are just, you know, trying to set the scene of what's happening, which is why we included that front page cover story from the New York Times. There's this film called The Atomic City, which is a B film taking place in the Southwest, having to deal with atomic paranoia. And, you know, I tried to find a review of it and we found a review in the New York Times. And then when looking at the PDFs of the entire, that entire issue of the New York Times, the same exact day that that film is reviewed, page A1 is about an atom bomb test and has this incredible picture of the Marines seemingly, you know, like a few hundred yards away from it, you know, racing towards it. And I just thought, wow, this is this incredible moment where what's actually happening and a film about it are appearing in the same day's paper. And I wanted deliberately included that front page piece because it sets the stage. So once I saw, Wes, you gave me a list of films that you had been thinking about, and Nashville was on, on that list. But, you know, my initial instinct as to why it might have been included was not necessarily the reason. I think that was some of the fun of this, is because, you know, from the beginning, Wes never said, this is the reason. I mean, you might, you did say, for instance, that, oh, there's a design in Rear Window that we directly, you know, a costume design that you had directly taken. But in general, there wasn't one specific reference which allowed us to sort of explore. Yeah, well, often I probably don't even know why I'm referring to some of these movies. I mean, I guess we might have a kind of handful of movies that, and often we kind of, Roman and I will watch some things together around what we're thinking about. And really it's sort of just to see, do we get inspired? Often it's partly, are there things we can get from the period? I mean, often a movie is a great way just to see how things were done, to remind yourself or to learn how things were done in another time. There's an aspect of movies where it's always a bit documentary because, you know, it's, well, the camera's rolling. Every 
take of dailies is sort of a documentary and until you cut it into a movie. You know, for me, there usually isn't a specific reason. There's more like a whole spirit of the thing. But if we dig in, we can find some of the reasons. Like Rear Window also, along with things related to this character who Scarlett Johansson is playing, this actress who has some Hitchcock women that she's connected to in some ways. But also Jason Schwartzman's character is quite, whether I intended it or not, I think it probably is taking things from James Stewart in Rear Window. I mean, it's, I guess it's my favorite Hitchcock movie and it's a movie I've seen so many times. And it sort of filters in you know, without getting too kind of like plotty or conspiracy theory, I wonder if part of the theme of the film is also just like how just even in the kind of layering of what is real, what is backstage, what is image, what is, you know, the way in which kind of American media is all so intertwined, American media and politics that it's very hard to differentiate kind of an objective reality from a media depiction of it. And then it, that gets interlaid into entertainment as well. If that's something, you know, you were thinking of at all about in the making of this film or in the putting together of this anthology. Because it's about storytelling, you know, there's sort of thematic connections with what you're describing. But ours is, I guess, that... New York Times front page that Jake describes, it's sort of like depicting both the paranoia and the actual threat, which sort of makes it not really paranoia anymore. So I guess all of that stuff sort of swirls together, but I can't say it was that was a specific thing we were really thinking about when we were writing it. In the end, in a way, there's a world and a setting and a thing related to the period and related to the artworks of the period, the movie artworks especially, that we felt inspired by, but it's also kind of a staging area for us to tell a story that isn't necessarily built on the period. That's more just about this man at this moment in his life, this woman who is passing through this town and when they meet. And that comes as much from eventually there are the things that come from our family histories and from the broader something or another about America. But then it also finally just comes down to your own thing and there's something your friend went through and something that happened five years ago and all of that stuff that, you know, these stories tend to become more immediate the more you work on them. But Jake, maybe you have further uh, comment more in that area about the book. Yeah, I was thinking maybe specifically about the ace in the hole piece and just this kind of mechanism of, of media and the way it plays into or becomes part of entertainment in America. The way we sort of worked on the book, which, I mean, I haven't done a book like this before, but, you know, it wasn't that we sat down and said, let's cover this or let's cover that. This is really, Wes and Roman wrote the film, all these actors interpreted it, and then I saw it, and we're drawing connections back and forth. So it's like Wes and I are coming at this from a different perspective. You know, we're sort of batting it back and forth rather than sort of setting out with an agenda. So with something like Ace in the Hole, I couldn't help but think just specifically of, you know, the carnival coming to town. You know, Ace in the Hole was originally titled The Big Carnival, or the title was changed from Ace in the Hole to The Big Carnival. So this aspect of as Ace in the Hole progresses and, and more and more people start showing up and there's a Ferris wheel and all the media coverage, this is sort of what begins to happen in, in Asteroid City. 
I guess the idea is, is that we could have sort of made that reference more explicit, but part of the fun of this is introducing people to films that they might not have seen or introducing people to writers that they may not know. So, so we have this extraordinary film by Billy Wilder, but we also have this extraordinary piece by Molly Haskell. You know, another thing that Wes and I discussed is we sort of had a list of authors that we wanted to approach, either the commission pieces or ones that we then dug up. But Molly Haskell, if there's a piece by Molly Haskell that is in any way relates to the film, well, that's just something we're going to do automatically. We had hoped that Hilton Owls would be able to contribute something. There wasn't enough time, but he was thrilled that we want to include the Sam Shepard piece. So it wasn't only just a matter of finding films and subjects. It was also very much wanting to approach writers that we liked and admired. I would love to talk to you both all day long, but I guess I should kind of wrap up and ask you, I'm just curious, you know, the clearly you both are so deep within the world of cinema and you would know a lot better than I, if a career like Wes's, even being able to make this wonderful book, if these things are more rare now than they have been in the past, how you see like the kind of, at least in America, the culture of, of film at this moment and what it permits and what is possible still for a small number of people, a large number of people, where you feel like things are and if you have any you know, hopes for where they could go in the next decade. For me, I think less about the decade and more about whether there's going to be a strike tonight. You know, I mean, if there's a strike that nobody's making any movies with SAG actors for the next six months or something like that, it's such a sort of volatile, fragile moment because of the way the technology has changed. And people, I mean, how do you support cinema if people don't go to cinemas? And they do, but they don't go for everything. Normally, I kind of don't find myself talking about, in an interview, talking about what do you see for the future of a thing or any of that. Because, well, you know as much as I do, but um, I certainly can share my perspective at this exact moment, which is what a mess it seems like, because it's such a, obviously for those of us who love movies, this art form means, you know, we have our families and all those kind of things. But other than that, this is sort of the thing. We love these things. And um, at the moment, it's hard to see exactly how it can continue this way, how you can make movies with the means and the scale and the care, they're expensive. And it's a shame to think of that it means we sort of have to make them on a computer. But I hope that there's some evolution that usually the medium kind of lasts through these big shifts. But this one, I don't know exactly how it's going to work. I think the, a big difference between then and now, which is a really positive thing, is that films that are you know, like Wes's are not going to sort of fade into obscurity. You know, we were talking about Wilder and so many of these major filmmakers from the period have these one or two films that like failed commercially and then sort of the, rendered them inaccessible. And I think that for the hope is that it will exist on some form of physical media. But I do think that there's enough of an interest. There is such an incredible interest now in so many different types of work 
that new work that's being created won't necessarily fade into complete obscurity. And there's so many sort of incredible archival reclamation projects that are happening with so many films that have been marginalized, filmmakers that have been marginalized, that it seems like a great time. There's an abundance of, of stuff. That seems like a big difference. Same with literature, too, right? Everyone was concerned about certain retailers or ebooks, and it just seems in the last few years there's been such an increased level of, uh, of interest. I'm trying to bring this back to literature, Kate, because I don't want your listeners to think that we're only interested in, in movies. This is a, a book show. I appreciate it, Jake, and um, that's a really lovely and hopeful note to end on. So thank you so much. Thanks to you both. That was Jake Perlin and Wes Anderson speaking about a book that Jake edited called Do Not Detonate Without Presidential Approval. And it's about Wes Anderson's new film, Asteroid City. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Blotton.